Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. In our highly connected world of cell phones, ever-expanding inboxes, and constant social media updates, it's become easy to get caught up in the wave of this immersive technology. For many of us, our cell phones never leave our sides and are the last item we look at before sleeping and the first we see on waking. Social media allows us to be everywhere at once, connecting our brains to people and places all over the world. But while the internet gives us so much, it also changes our social relationships and our mental environments in ways that can be detrimental to a brain that's not too different from that of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. How did we live before the constant interconnectedness of the internet came along? In her new book, The Joy of Missing Out, Christina Crook helps us to reflect on digital communications technology to think whether we can experience joy in occasionally missing out. We talk with Christina first on today's show from Toronto. Then we speak about the digital detox movement and adult retreat camps that proclaim an experience of disconnecting to reconnect. Participants of these camps are asked to check their cell phones at the door and are discouraged to even talk about their day jobs. In the second half of today's episode, we speak with Andrew Zen in Los Angeles an independent film producer and longtime friend of the show, about his experience at one of these digital detox camps. This is episode number 90 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Justin Ritchie. And I'm Seth Moserkatz. Get ready to digitally detox your brain. It began from a personal place of feeling overwhelmed and a bit frustrated with the way that my relationships were sort of developing. I'm actually from Vancouver. I now live in Toronto. So they're very far apart. And a lot of my relationships that didn't used to be mediated by the phone and email and such and social media were. And I was finding that I was not putting in the effort to really connect to people that I really said that I cared about and that I loved and a couple of people in particular. And this started to kind of grade on me. And I, I have a degree in communications from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And it's, I just sort of started paying attention to the internet. I would pull out clippings and save them. My grandmother was a, a clipping lady and I kind of followed in her footsteps and was just paying attention to what was happening in social media. And I just came to a personal point where I felt like I need to step away in a radical way. And so that's what I did for 31 days. I, I ditched the internet for a month. And, and that led to the book. Uh, so in your book, you stepped away from technology for 31 days. 
And during that time, you didn't touch social media, you turned data off on your cell phone, and you checked email, not at all. And instead, you wrote letters using typewriters and pens and paper and the nitty gritty of communication the way it was, you know, 30 years ago. What was that like for you to step back into that world? I mean, this is a world that that we all have grown up in when we were young, but now it's something that is no longer really around. Mm hmm. I kind of described the first couple of days like any kind of detox. I mean, most people don't like to call their internet use addictive, but it really tends to be that way. And and in my case, it definitely was so. It was sort of compulsive and, and really addictive. And so the first couple of days were difficult. I mean, I, I really enjoyed getting on the typewriter on, on day one for sure, because I really actually love to write on a typewriter because of the presentness that it requires. I love the sound of it. I love the physicality of it. And the, the primary things that I discovered when I was away were quietness of mind, like my head just cleared out. And I think most people can kind of connect with that idea that that's what would happen when you weren't checking Instagram and uh, Twitter and, and all that chatter sort of taking up space in your head that was just gone. And I started checking off the to-do list, like all the things that I felt like I never had time for. All of a sudden I had time, like a lot of time. So those were the two primary things I really discovered when I stepped away. Now, one of the themes of your book is that the internet gives us a lot, but also takes a lot away from us. Right. So could you talk a little bit about what it does give us, but also what it takes away? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it gives us so much. And that can't be understated. I mean, the fact that we can connect with family and friends on the other side of the world in real time is the most amazing. I mean, if anyone 50 years ago knew that we would be doing that, they would be straight out of a science fiction novel. So that's incredible. And I think that you know, I'm a freelance writer. During my experiment, I had to file a couple of stories that I hadn't finished. And I had to do it not through the internet. I had to save it on a USB stick and actually send them by mail. And that was horrible. And they got lost. And just to say that email is amazing. Like you can file a story or a piece of work in nanoseconds. So it really helps. And then of course, there's all of the ways that our lives are helped and expedited through things like databases at hospitals, etc. So much good. On the flip side, we are not present people anymore. And there's a whole bunch of ramifications for that in terms of intimacy in families and romantically and and work relationships, face-to-face communication really being on the decline. There's, of course, this new book out by Sherry Turkle called Reclaiming Conversation, which really tackles that. She's just the most brilliant woman ever with a double PhD from Harvard. But it really is a mixed bag, and that's how I approach it in my book. But I really push for people first, putting people first before our technologies, because ultimately we were created to connect with people. When I, was, when I was reading your book, I would stop reading to answer a text message. I felt like this guilt hanging over me. And it just made me really aware of how much I use my technology, my, my smartphone in particular, in my daily life. Do you think that people are really even aware of how much they've integrated smart technologies into their life, how much they check their email, how often they tweet? Do you think that people are even aware of it at this point? I feel like people are becoming more and more aware, but I mean, my conversations probably tend in that direction just because of the nature of my work. I do think that most people are pretty unaware of really the amount of time that they're giving to social media and communication through some kind of computer or a smartphone. But I think generally people are starting to tap into the fact that it's not 
so hot anymore. It's not as fun as it used to be. So I don't think it's so cut and dry. I think there's definitely a big wide spectrum in terms of people's awareness. Now, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was just so much techno optimism about the internet and what it was going to do for us. And there's still, you know, so much uh, optimism about internet technologies, because that's just part of North American culture is like this focus on optimism. And expressing doubt about the advantages of internet technologies is often viewed as techno pessimism. So since technology enables progress, and that's inherently framed as good and desirable in our culture, why do you think we hold that value of like internet technology enabling progress, and therefore it is good? That's so much of how the conversation is framed. It's a great question. Advertising? I mean, new has always been good, right? From the dawn of advertising, we're told that we're less than, that if we have this new gadget or this new thing, this new item, our lives will be the better for it. So I have a background in mass communication. I mean, I studied this stuff in university. We're told it. It's a story we are told that new is better and that that we're on a trajectory that's sort of projecting itself. Like that's what you kind of hear coming out of Silicon Valley is you know, that this is an inevitable future and that it's sort of happening separate from us as humans. But the reality is, is that we are choosing, we are creating, we are consuming, we are making choice after choice as the people that are developing the products and us as consumers. So I think that it's glossy and sexy and it's, and even the whole thing about promise of the future, it being able to solve all of humanity's problems, right? I mean, everyone is hopeful that that could be true because we know that we are kind of in a bit of trouble. So there's a lot going on there, but I think it's a story we're being told. It's really interesting to think about technology as it's grown in our society. My grandma refuses to use a mouse. She will not touch a keyboard, given she's pretty old, and she just refuses to. She will not use it. I'm thinking about kids nowadays growing up using smartphones and tablets like they're second nature. And I'm also thinking about what technology will come along that separates us from the technology. Like, you know, our generation will refuse to maybe get a bionic eye implanted or refuse to get the implanted text keyboard in your skin so you can text while you're walking. What do you think that technology separation will be like for us? And, and what do you think those divides between generations will look like? I have not been asked that question before. It's an excellent question, and it is sort of off the top of my head. Just for a bit of perspective, I have kids. They're ages two, four, and six, so they were little. They are growing up with this technology, and their life is going to be a completely different journey in terms of adoption and use and and the choices they're going to make. And I imagine that people that have grown up with digital their whole lives will probably feel a lot more comfortable with things like you described with bionic eyes and limbs and adaptations to body. I think that I personally feel very uncomfortable with that. I do not want to have a chip implanted in my brain that will allow me to play back my memories. You know, like these are science fictional ideas. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the show Black Mirror on BBC, but it actually takes... It's amazing and it takes real technology that is in development and pulls it to its logical conclusions. And these are the things that we're talking about is is the ability to sort of rewind our memories and replay them. And, and if we have that ability, what does that mean? What are the ramifications of that? We simply don't know. So, yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen, but I think it's a really interesting question. 
Now, a lot of these stories, like we were just talking about, are that of humans melding with the machine of like transhumanisms and the transhumanism movement and people beginning to implant magnets in their fingertips so they can feel electric fields or something like that. And that's all part of that technology inevitability projected storyline. So what are your thoughts on whether the internet will just keep expanding forever until we live in smart houses and have smart cars and technologies in all our classrooms? Yeah, well, I think we already do have the technologies on all our classrooms. I mean, my kids are in kindergarten, they have a smart board. So I mean, that's already happening, at least here in Canada. Smart cars, I think we're all gonna be driving smart cars in five years, honestly, smart houses, I think that's an inevitable thing, probably as well, because people like convenience, and we like new. So I think those are things that are going to happen. And we're going to see it in the foreseeable future, probably in the next decade. But I think in terms of the other things in terms of, you know, man and machine, which sounds so science fiction-y and maybe slightly weird. Those are the things where I ask the question constantly, what are we doing? What are people for? What are we doing here? You know, what is the ultimate purpose for us as humans? And if it is, we don't really have a purpose and and ultimately we're just here to have a good time and to consume and to have our best possible life, then that's kind of it. But if there's something more to us, then we need to push back on what it means to be human. You know, what are the ramifications for playing out the development of man and machine? I think that those are the questions we need to be asking right now. And the answers that we come up with and decide on as a culture globally is going to have a huge impact on the future. One of the topics you raise in your book is that we as humans search for novelty so very much and that novelty brings pleasure and and so much of that pleasure is in the pursuit. I'm thinking about being single now in modern day society with the rise of services like OkCupid and Tinder. And I'm wondering how those sort of apps rewire our brain to search for that novelty you know when a relationship is not working out you pop on your phone and you can just find a new date right away Mm. what do you think that does to our relationships and how does that make them feel less permanent or maybe even less important Mm. there's something that i write about in the book and that is that meaning is found in limitation there is meaning in a marriage or, you know, a committed long-term relationship because there's limits in it because you're committed to one person. There's meaning and limitation when you really commit yourself to building into three really important friendships. There's meaning found there and novelty is fun, but it is a short-term high that we get. And so there are huge ramifications for that. If you love Tinder. Do I love Tinder? <laughs> I'm sorry that you're dating in the age of Tinder. Like, do you like, to, like, do you like using Tinder? I've, I've, like, never I've, met, never I've never met anybody who's really loved Tinder, you know, and the experience for men is vastly different than it is for women. I've read a lot of articles that talk about the scarcity models that Tinder runs on. And it's like a, a woman is speaking into like eight or nine different microphones and a guy is talking into like a, a, a tin can. That's kind of the way that Tinder works for right. for singles or non-singles. Have you thought much about those ideas in, in our world, like w- the way that it rewires our brain? In terms of novelty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have. And it's it's with kids, too. I mean, I, I, maybe I'll speak to that because that's the thing that's sort of right in front of my face. But for my kids, there is... 
utter novelty available to them. You know, they pick up the iPad and it's there's 16 games and there's 2,700 shows on Netflix and there's nothing but options. And then you show them something that's sort of nature-like on a screen and then you get them into nature and it's like, why is that flower taking so long to grow? Why things just are very glossy online on the computer and things in real life really aren't glossy. And so that novelty is problematic (laughs) because life is slow and troublesome and hard and things online are, are not so. And so I think that that really does rewire our expectations of the real world. And reflecting on this, as you have, how are you letting your kids use technology? What kind of structure are you putting in place and how are you talking to them about it? Because without having that level of dynamic, rich visual media when I was, you know, 10 or 11 and I just had, you know, like a Tandy 386 machine, it was really different using a computer. Mm -hmm. But now it's so well polished and the consumer experience of like purchasing a song or making a microtransaction or buying like gems in a a video game or something, that's also relatively easy now. Mm -hmm. And so how are you kind of structuring that for your kids? So I don't have a lot of structure, which is strange to people because of the nature of what I write about and think about. But I, I don't have set timelines for our kids. This is what I say to parents. I say that find the things that you love, find the things that your kids love and make those things the priority. When we are out doing things that we totally love doing and are enjoying, then the screen isn't a problem. And I use the example of a family that I know in Ottawa, which is Canada's capital. And their kids are a lot older than mine, but every Sunday they go for a skate out on the Rideau Canal in the winter and they aren't asking for iPads. They're not grabbing their smartphones. They're just having an awesome time. And so I think it's really about finding the things that cause your kids to flourish and cause you to flourish and doing them together. So it's about making the computer and the smartphones not being the number one thing, not the number one excitement in their life. Saying that, my kids are going to be, you know, 12 and 13 a few years from now. I guess it'll be like five or seven years from now, thank God. And we'll have to navigate that, you know, when they get a phone. And I hear about kids around that age group actually hearing that they don't organize to like meet each other for lunch at the same spot. They text each other and it's always changing. And if you can't text them, then you don't know where your friends are meeting for lunch. Like, aren't these kids in class together? Like, can they talk to each other? I don't don't know what's going on, but apparently that's what's happening in schools. So, um, yeah, I haven't had to navigate a lot. I'm I'm kind of the boss still. So we should probably have a a kid on here to talk about their technology and how they see it. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Yeah. That would probably be really interesting. Another really interesting thing going on right here in Durham, North Carolina, where I'm living, is there's a lot of gentrification happening. And the narrative of gentrification in cities around the United States provides a really interesting kind of view of when you compare it to the new technology being pushed along. Because technology, in so many ways, largely orders the unordered, making calm, straight lines where there used to be curves and zigzags. And that's kind of the way what the city happens too, where there's used to be this dangerous place of lots of people living that you don't want to hang out with and becomes a place where white people can come in and have their condominiums. What happens when technology comes in and makes all of our problems straight and ordered and less messy? And then what role does the human play in that life where they have 
total leisure where they don't have to do the dishes. They don't really even have to go to work because the machines do it all for them. What is the role of a human then? There isn't much. (laughs) Really, there isn't much of a role then for humans. And I talk in the book about the fact that we actually were created for work and there's meaning in work. They're frustrating things to do. Like I don't like cleaning toilets, but you know what? I'm serving my family by cleaning the toilet. I'm using my body and my body was meant to be used. You know, there is a lot of meaning in work. And I think that that is not a high value in our society because we've so made work the death of us, especially with our work weeks. I mean, I live in Toronto. It's a crazy, stressful high pressure city. People work 80 hours a week. I mean, that's not life. That's not what we were designed for, but were we made to work and to use our bodies and to serve other people with them? Absolutely. Without those things, we will lack meaning. We will find ourselves in depression. We will find ourselves with a major lack. And I mean, it's a bit silly to point to something so clearly in pop culture, but I am going to say it in the hunger games, you know, you look at the capital that's our future. That's the future that we're headed for is absolute frivolity and fashion being our number one concern of the day and really not having to do anything. That doesn't sound like life to me. It's almost like the analogy you gave around central heating being traded out for the hearth, the hearth being traded out for central heating. That's kind of the picture I see it as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that example, to maybe flesh that out for listeners, there's a wonderful philosopher named Albert Borgman, and he writes about the hearth and the fire being the central piece of a home and the fact that it provided for a family different roles. So the youngest children would collect kindling and the older children would sort of stack the wood and the mother would start the fire and and all these different elements. And it created a rhythm to the day and it was work and it was physical and it gave them meaning. So yeah, I love that example as well. So much of our technology is created with this idea of making transactions frictionless and and everything easy and effortless and removing boundaries and limits. And so what does it mean if we take away all these limits in our lives and technology takes those limits away? What does that do to our experience of life, in your opinion? There's a wonderful writer who I love named Jean Vanier, and he writes and says that to be human means to remain connected to our humanness and to reality. And I think that is an absolutely core idea for us to meditate on and to focus on moving forward. What does it actually mean to be human? Because that is the question. That is going to be the question of this century. We are going to be deciding what it means to be human as we adopt all these technologies moving forward. And I love that definition about staying connected to our humanness, like as we come out of the womb, as people, and to reality, like actual physical reality. Like I'm looking out my window at traffic and it's dark and I've got my desk here and I'm holding a pen, like to reality, not to virtual reality. And we are stepping into, I mean, with Oculus Rift, with all the virtual reality that is out there, it is going to be blurred. And if we do not have to work, where are we going to be spending our time? We're going to be spending it more and more in places that stimulate us on a high level. And I think we really absolutely need to be asking these questions about humanness and and it being a powerful and beautiful idea. Like we were, we were physical beings. We were meant to be physical beings and we need to live in light of that. 
So I'm I'm thinking maybe in the future, maybe 30 years from now, when we're all in virtual reality and our, we have all of the chips in our brains, and we're going to be looking back at this interview and, and saying, well, those guys were so pessimistic. Why why do they think so much about their bodies? Why they don't even understand that we're all just electric impulses and our brains are just these electric computers. We could just wire whatever information we wanted to them. <laughs> <laughs> that was damn pessimistic. I know. It's very pessimistic. But <laughs> what do you think that technology can bring us. There's a lot of inequality in the world with bodies and communication is very difficult with different languages. There's a lot of different eases that technology can bring us as far as connecting with people. In an ideal world, where do you think that technology could play that role? Yes, so good. I was really hoping we were going to turn the corner. I'm like, I feel all the doom and gloom. (laughs) So much possibility, so much that's already happening. I mean, in terms of people that are in places where they would never have a voice, would never be able to cry out about injustices in remote parts of the world. I mean, the fact that that is getting attention and people are moving and acting on their behalf. I mean, that's incredible. And there's so many examples of that daily. I think that ultimately using these technologies as tools, which is what they are, will help us to move forward and use them as tools to better us as humans, but continuing to live in the light of our humanness and that being a good thing, not wanting to get beyond that. I think that we really need to be thinking about all these questions. And I love that you guys are having me on this program to talk about it. I think these are the conversations we need to be having, asking ourselves and one another and the people that are creating the technology what is the purpose of this? What is the logical ramifications of this? How is this going to play out? And is that going to serve us well? And I think that there's so many exciting things on the horizon. Yeah, you're talking about this very deliberate engagement with this technology, rather than what has kind of evolved in our culture over the last decade, as all of these things have rolled out so quickly and become increasingly more uh, polished and easy to use. I remember smartphones maybe eight or nine years ago when I got my first one, and I was like, I'm never using another smartphone because the experience was so horrible. And now the operating systems are so slick and so easy to use that I'm like, wow, what would I ever do without one? And I was coming home from the office just the other day on the bus, and literally everyone around me was on their phone just scrolling and pushing through stuff and notifications. And it comes back to redefining what social etiquette and norms are around these things because when Seth was reading through your book he brought up to me like you know in funerals or all these crazy places that you'd never think of seeing people checking smartphones now people will and Mm -hmm. how do you see that kind of deliberate engagement with technology and kind of a social etiquette evolving around it? Oh, man, I wish I had an easy answer for that, but I don't. I think, again, it's coming down to having these conversations with one another, and and it has to come down to awareness. Even five years ago, I thought it was unfathomable that someone would check their phone in a funeral, and now it actually doesn't seem that strange to me. Not that I would do it, it's just that it doesn't seem strange. And I think that that is really the power of these technologies, is that they are so constantly with us. They are, to use a Marshall McLuhan phrase, an extension of man. They are an extension of us. And I think that it's really exciting to see and hear about people that are doing the whole, put your smartphone in the middle of the table when you go out for dinner with your friends and the first one that pulls it out has to pay for dinner. You know, it's it's starting to identify the fact that 
we actually have a lot more fun when we aren't all sitting around the table ignoring each other at an expensive restaurant. I think that it's going to take time. Everyone's adopting at the same time. Parents are literally adopting at the same time as their children. Not helpful, right? That's really hard to be trying to draw lines for your children when you're not even able to draw lines for yourself. So I think we are going to figure it out. I think, I, I hope that we will figure out that it's not really appropriate to bring out smartphones at funerals and places that are profoundly sacred moments. But not everyone's going to make that decision. So those are my thoughts, I guess. Yeah. So one big thing now is technology in the classroom. And so many school systems are rolling out and deploying technology in the classroom. So if you were in a school full of parents and such, how would you structure kind of some ground rules on how they should handle it? What would you recommend that they think about the problem as? I love that you asked me this question. Because no one's giving me a chance to talk about it. I'm going to get on my soapbox. Can I please get on my soapbox for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Get on my soapbox. Thank you. There should be no cell phones in classrooms. That's what I think. I think she just said it, folks. I said it. (laughs) There should be no cell phones in classrooms. Can you even imagine yourself as a 14 year old in a classroom with a smartphone in your hand trying to pay attention to your history teacher? Like, just everyone, just imagine that for a second. Impossible. Sorry, I was checking my cell phone. What did you say? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I don't understand why they need to be there. I don't understand why the school system is trying so hard to integrate them. I think they should be at home, but that's not going to happen. I think they should be in their lockers. And I think it should be super, super strict rule. And I think that if I was a teacher and I had kids in my classroom with cell phones, I would not be putting in the effort for preparation and putting in all of my passion because I would know that I would have about 40% if lucky people's attention. That goes for universities as well, but those are big kids and they can make their own decisions. But I think in terms of elementary and high school, that would be the first thing I would do. I mean, smart boards, my kids have smart boards in their classrooms. They pretty much, even when we were kids, we had like VHS, whatever, <laughs> DVD, even though we had the TV, you know, that would roll in. Um, Laser you know, discs. Watch, that's right. We'd watch yeah. the video. Oh, yeah. You know, the smart boards, they do videos sometimes those things can be helpful right like a 10 minute or a five minute sort of explanatory thing that's visual I think those are helpful and they're actually they're in community because it's one board and they all gather together and then they talk about it but even with individual iPads the stuff that's coming out is not super positive it's really isolating it doesn't have huge educational outcomes and you keep hearing teachers say that the moment after they gave the kids the iPads they wish they could take them back so that is what I think I think that we have completely swung the pendulum to technology is awesome and we should have it in school in every possible way to we need to swing it back to some sort of place in the middle There were some really interesting statistics that you gave in your book. One billion smartphones in use worldwide. 90% of people keep their mobile phone within three feet of them 24 hours a day. 28% of Apple product users and 23% of Android users would rather go without seeing their significant other for a week rather than being apart from their phones. And that's according to a 2012 Telenav survey. And the, the last one here that I thought was really interesting was a Yahoo survey reveals nearly 15% of people would rather give up sex entirely than go even a weekend without their phones. So 
communication technologies have always been the primary cause of social change, right? Maybe it's the, the Gutenberg Bible or, you know, writing and then telegraphs. And these technologies have pushed social change hugely. Mm -hmm. And these statistics reveal anything. It's that people find that this technology, this communication technology is extremely important to them. Mm -hmm. What do you think the social change is that's coming with these technologies? This personalized broadcasting booth, what comes along with that? I kind of want to throw it back at you guys. I want to know what you guys think. Well, having a smartphone with me at all times kind of makes me feel that I can influence the world whenever I want. So if I have a profound idea or a profound thought, I can take a picture of it or write a Facebook post or a tweet that goes out to the world and then goes viral and then everybody can see it and everyone will know this idea and it will be absorbed into the social mindset and politicians will be talking about it the next day and you know <laughs> everyone will be talking about that thought that Seth had when he was sitting on the toilet before. You know? <laughs> I'll just say something really briefly. I think that there's been a tendency in human communication to increasingly take the images that we hold in our heads when we're trying to use language to convey those and making them increasingly explicit. And that's what things like Instagram and so on and being able to take a photo of what you're seeing at any moment and share it with someone across the world, if possible, is making happen. And so that's the kind of social change that I'm seeing is that people are able to transmit what they're seeing in higher and higher definition clarity all across yeah. the planet. And one other idea I had around that is when you're Facebook friends with somebody who lives on the other side of the planet or in a, in a country that your country is at war with, it becomes increasingly difficult for your country to be at war or to have some kind of social sanctions against that country because you have friends there. And if everyone becomes part of these online world communities where everyone's friends with each other across all different sorts of national state barriers, those barriers kind of become irrelevant and government has to change to reflect those. Mm. That's amazing what, what you shared about the friendships globally. Absolutely. That is absolutely what's happening. Like how exciting is that, especially considering all that's happening Globally, that is not so happy, but that's true. It's they, Those are our friends. I love that. I think those are the things that I'm seeing. I think that, you know, the ability to be able to share what we think are our most profound thoughts at every possible moment is exciting. I think sometimes it's helpful to realize that our most profound thought might not actually be quite as profound as we thought and maybe sitting with it a little bit longer might be wise because, you know, we don't all need a lot more chatter and, and things to listen to at all times. The one thing that I want to sort of leave with your listeners, and it's uh, something that came to me through a colleague of mine, is this idea of the museum of me. And she talks about it sort of when we step back and we look back at our lives, you know, let's say 50 years from now, and we look back at all of our social engagement on and offline, we're going to have this curated museum of me online. And what is that museum going to say about us? And I personally wanted to say some pretty excellent things about where I put my attention and who I poured into and, and how I spent my time. And so I'm excited to have people like you in the world that are thinking about the long view. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you had me on today. Yeah, so we just want to ask one last question before we close out, and that's really how being online and creating this museum of me and having these incredibly engaging technologies change the view of ourselves and, and change the way we see our place in the world. Mm -hmm. 
What does it make us think about ourselves? I think that we think that our value comes from outside of ourselves and increasingly so with all of the validation we can get at a moment's notice. And I fall prey to it too, posting something and then, you know, waiting with bated breath to see who will like or not like it. I think ultimately our value comes from outside activity and it's helpful to be reminded of that. I think a final thing that I want to say is just that details create a relationship. It's the tiny details that we have in our most intimate relationships that make them most meaningful. And we really can only invest in so many relationships, really deep relationships in our lives and spreading ourselves thin isn't doing us a lot of service. So I guess it would be where are you getting your validation from and and where do you really find most meaning and walk forward in light of that. smarter or more distracted. The average American receives more than 15 hours a day of digital media. Everything from YouTube videos and Netflix movies to computer games and text messages. By the age of seven, a child born today will have spent the equivalent of one full year watching screens, according to a study published in the journal Archives of Disease and Childhood. That's basically spending a seventh of your life on the computer or checking your texts. So what is this doing to our brains? Teachers seem to think it's nothing good. According to the Pew Research Center's Internet and American Life Project, 87% of teachers think that technology creates an easily distracted generation with short attention spans. But the research isn't so conclusive. It may seem easy to assume, based on earlier studies on TV watching habits, that screen time does affect attention spans. A study published in the journal Pediatrics reports that for each hour of television watched per day at ages 1 through 3, increases the risk of attention problems such as ADHD by almost 10% by age 7. And that's what a few studies also show. Recent research from Microsoft, of all places, found that average attention span has dropped. 15 years ago, attention spans were around 12 seconds on average, now they're around 8 seconds. And some people think that's less of an attention span than what a goldfish has. So you're reading an article online when you get an instant message with a link to a funny photo, which of course you have to share. And now you're reading your Facebook news wall, which sends you to a video of a panda bear attacking a kid. And now you're reading Wikipedia to learn everything you can about the violent behavior of panda bears. And this is what three minutes on the internet can be like. We live like this all the time, and it has to have some kind of effect on us. The net is making us more superficial as thinkers. That is Nicholas Carr. He is the author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. To understand this whole thing better, we need to go way back in time to, say, like, the prehistoric age. You wanted to know everything going on around you because the more you knew about your surroundings, the less likely you were to get attacked by a predator. And there's even evidence that our brains release some dopamine, pleasure-producing uh, neurotransmitter chemical, to reward us for seeking out and finding new information. 
So getting distracted felt good and helped us stay alive. But the problem is that nowadays, predators aren't much of an issue, but we still have the same brains. And in one of our research centers at UCLA, what we're able to show is that cultural experiences, that is, messages sent out in society that are mediated through communication, either one-on-one -on -one or mass media communication, actually shape the actual structure of the brain. And so it's a two-way street. The brain created social media, and social media shapes the brain. Now, when you look at what area of the brain both sends out those nonverbal signals and receives them and makes sense of them, it's the right hemisphere of the brain. And the right hemisphere of the brain is much more closely connected to the lower regions, so the higher right areas are connected to the lower regions of the brain, and those lower regions work with the body itself to create our emotions, to give us the felt texture of lived life. So one deep concern that I have as a developmental theorist and a developmental clinician is that the more and more people spend time not using nonverbal signals and instead use mostly verbal ones, that is text with language that has this linear way of being distributed, you're activating primarily your left hemisphere, which in the brain is much more distant from the lower areas that help mediate emotion with, with the body. And even autobiographical memory is dominant on the right side. So you're much more into just logistics. Even thinking about how people are going to care about you or like you is a left brain thing, which is fascinating. It's called social display rules. So from a hemisphere point of view, what I'm deeply concerned about is if social media, email, texting are not actually getting people more face-to-face -face time with each other or getting them in touch with even what's going on inside of them, then the new generation will be much more used to a very surface level of experiencing the world. So there's nothing inherently wrong with social media, but if it is replacing time for face-to-face, -face, then that could be a big problem. I use my state of the You're listening to episode number 90 of The Ex-Environmentalist. You've been listening to Christina Crook talking about her book, The Joy of Missing Out. Next up, we're going to be hearing from Andrew Zen talking about his personal experience at a digital detox camp. We'd like to welcome Andrew Zen, independent comedy director and producer, and also a great friend of the show. Andrew has produced all sorts of fantastic comedy videos that have gone viral all over the web. And Andrew is also a avid detoxer of digital media. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We wanted to get started here, and we've been talking in the past about some of the 
the way social media has affected our lives. And in response to that, you've actually been able to attend a digital detox camp. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you on the show today is because you had the opportunity to go to a camp in the Redwoods in Mendocino, California. Would you talk to us a little bit about that and maybe tell us what it was like and the rules that there were there and what it's like to be without your cell phone for a week? Was it called a digital detox camp? I think it was called Camp Ground. Is that correct? That is correct. Camp Grounded was an event. I went in July, so I went uh, about six months ago. And it was in Mendocino, California. And it's a part of the whole digital detox movement, which puts on events all over the world with the mission of bringing people together and just becoming aware of the cost that technology has on our lives. You said the cost of technology on our lives. What are you talking about there? We've been talking earlier in this episode about some of these ways that having a smartphone in our pocket that's so accessible and social media has really reshaped the way that we engage with the people around us or personal relationships and with technology in general. Go into more detail about why you went to the camp and your perception of costs that technology has had on our lives. For sure. And I think before I even go into details, I just want to say it was a really cool experience. And I think doing a detox, whether it's a formal program or a pact with among friends, any sort of format or program to keep you accountable to just experience what digital detox pushes and what they want. I think it's really powerful and something everyone really needs to try to do. And I'll touch more on that a bit later. But I was fortunate enough to get invited by a group of friends who I've worked with and I've become very friendly with uh, who I value very much up in San Francisco. And we was part of a group and got to experience everything that Camp Grounded has to offer with them. And so it was pretty cool to go there with people that I knew, strengthen my relationships, but also got a chance to meet a lot of really interesting, really cool people that I never would have met. So I'm really interested to know more about the camp. Could you walk us through what it was like going there? Maybe what they made you do when you started? Did you have to put your cell phone in like a in like a bag and throw it in the river or something like that? Yeah. I mean, basically <laughs> it was actually really cool. I didn't really have any expectations or any idea of what was going to happen. Going into it, I do remember journaling a bit the day before. What I wrote was basically that I I have this feeling that I'm on my phone all the time and I'm checking my email constantly and Facebook and being in entertainment too. Social media is, it's kind of like you feel trapped at times because you feel like there's this need to keep always checking and seeing what's going on and, you know, keeping up to date. And it's really tiring. And I knew I was very aware that some feeling was there, that there's some weight that I always have just being so connected to digital technology all the time. And I was curious and I was really looking forward to figuring out what that would be like to not be connected for a couple of days. So when I arrived to the camp, the first thing you do is you check your phone in and you don't have it back. They have an emergency number. Um, I made sure to send out the information to some of my closest friends and family, uh, just in case there was an emergency. But for all purposes, it's very, very strict as far as you cannot get your phone back until it's done. And the first thing that happened when you walked in after giving your phone was the whole camp, the way that they set it up was it was basically a summer camp for adults, which is really cool. And the whole structure of the whole weekend was just like summer camp. Did you guys ever go to summer camp? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, summer camp was great. Yeah, and it's really cool. I mean, I think one of the things that I found really powerful was just being able to be free again and not have work be such a, like, basically work is not allowed at this camp. So there are a couple of rules. I think this is a good place to start off with um, just kind of how they run their program. 
there were a couple of really interesting rules that we had to swear by in addition to giving our cell phones. And it was actually really interesting because I had no idea what impact this would have by the time I was done. The first one was you were not allowed to talk about work, and they actually called it W. So if anyone ever got caught talking about work, we made a pledge to keep them accountable and say no no W, <laughs> which is really funny. Did anyone get caught? Yeah. I mean, even I one time, you know, I think we're so used to using work as a crutch for social awkwardness. When you meet someone, the first thing you ask them most often is, you know, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do for work? It's such a work is such a big part of our lives and not being accountable by everyone there not to talk about work was a really powerful thing. And yeah, and I even introduced you with your job. Yeah, at the start of this segment here. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? There's a cost to that, and it's something that we're all guilty of, I think. I think it's very common. Yeah, why should your work define you? I think that that's a really good point. I mean, what you're left with when you don't talk about work, especially for several days in a row without technology, it's really a self-discovery process. And we didn't really talk too much about you know the specifics of the camp. We're going to talk about it right now, but... One of the things that I did get out of it was I felt more comfortable with myself and who I was and really having work removed when it's been so many years where I your identity is so aligned or it's grounded in your work and what you're doing, having the distinctions to be able to separate that and therefore just have time to focus and be connected to your real self is a really powerful thing. And I think that's why I say I think it's something great for people to do. So I think that not having work be part of the equation is actually one of the reasons why the whole experience is so impactful. Totally. And I was just thinking about this earlier today that work now for me has expanded even farther, farther than just the 40 hours that I log every week. It, it goes home with me in my cell phone. I, I check the email. I check I check it all as as I come home and you know it becomes a 70 hour work week just by having a cell phone in my in my pocket all the time and people you know the more I answer the emails the more people want more from me so creating that boundary for yourself is super important and I I would I would imagine that these sort of retreats kind of help you to set that boundary up did you find yourself creating those boundaries more and did you did you see it crossing into your work when you came home Definitely one of the things that I noticed after doing the campgrounds experience was hyper aware, especially for the week after I got back, of how much technology is in my life and really uh, the cost that it has on my happiness. I think that the best lens to look at this whole problem is really through what is the cost that it has on your connection to life and your happiness. And I think the reason why we're all guilty of being so connected and technology is costing us all, I know that sounds like a start of a movement or something crazy. But you know, there are people that you know, this is what they're about. And it's, you know, it's something that I do think that there needs to be a uh, larger shift in the dialogue about the problem, because we all keep each other in it. It's hard to change your habits when everyone you know, is doing the same thing. And I really believe that one of the benefits of going to Camp Grounded and digital detox is you get drawn emotionally by the experience. And it's very powerful in seeing how your life could be and what it used to be, you know, I think that we, uh, especially us at our age, we're, we're the last generation to really remember what life was like before the internet. And it was very cool to walk around nature and connect with people and talk about them and remember what it was like before Facebook and before cell phones and before texts and all these things like that. And it's really powerful. And I think that just like anything, if you really want to change a habit or change something about yourself or change your view, you have to be drawn emotionally. 
that's the start of the process. And I think Camp Grounded does a really good job of waking people up and seeing what the possibilities are for their lives without the connection of technology as much. You hit on something really interesting there, and that's that we are the last generation that grew up before internet and social media. And I remember when Facebook launched when I was in college and it was so cool, you know, you could see what people were doing all across campus before, you know, your mom had it, before your grandma had it, before everyone could see your photos and it was this public thing. And I grew up programming computers in DOS in text, you know? And so I always saw what was underneath the machines as they became more and more polished and more and more complex. And kids being born now, they just have the high-end iOS on an iPad and it's also polished and slick. And so you weren't allowed to talk about technology. You weren't allowed to talk about work. But those are two of the topics that come up so much in conversation. Everyone's like, oh, did you try out this new app on Android? Or what did you do at work this week? Like, those are just kind of small talk topics that everyone brings up. What did everyone at the camp talk about for, was it a whole week? It was three days. Okay. And the first day was really challenging because you're present to the fact that you usually use work as a, as a jumping off point. And one of the things that I realized after the first day and meeting a lot of great people and having some great conversations, um, it's people from all over the country, all over the world, which is uh, part of what's really cool about it. You realize that your work doesn't define you and your work, you know, we, we put so much emphasis on our identity on what we're doing with work. And it's no different than people putting their identity on where they go to college and making their parents happy and making therefore themselves happy. But the problem is it's, it's very hard when our society puts so much emphasis on success and on success equals happiness via that avenue to really ever just take a moment and try to gain a higher level of awareness to figure out what really is going to make you happy and who you really are. And I think that's what's great about this program. There's many others like it that really give you a chance to kind of stop and look at yourself. Now, you mentioned before that you felt like technology might be a crutch. And I think that's really interesting because oftentimes when there's a, a pause in the conversation or, you know, you, your friend gets up to go to the bathroom and you're sitting at the table by yourself, you pull out your phone and check your messages or you check what's going on on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And that moment of boredom becomes a, a moment where your your brain just like shoots all over the world and, and sees wherever it's going. What was that like for you and for people around you dealing with those moments of boredom, dealing with those moments where you weren't interacting and you were just being quiet and being by yourself? I think that's a great question. And I think that one of the biggest breakthroughs I had about people and my own actions in not having technology as a crutch to pull out, look at the time, you really realize that a lot of us have a, a fear of connecting with other people. And what that means is I think we're all guilty of it, or at least I am you know, walking down the street and instead of saying hi to your neighbor, you pull out your phone and look at the time and you don't even remember what time it is. You're not present for that moment. And I think that that's a great example of technology getting in the way of being present. And I think the game, you know, if you want to look at the game of life, this is how I've been looking at it lately, is if the goal is to have as many deep connections, meaningful connections, and, you know, have the richest life possible with the people in them, you have to focus on that. When technology is not present, like in this program with Camp Grounded, it leaves you no choice but to connect. And for me, it really opened my eyes to seeing that it's not that people don't want that. It's just that people are so used to their habits and they don't know any better. They don't have distinctions to compare 
what it means for them, their own happiness and their higher quality of connectedness to life if they didn't have this technology. So it's kind of like the whole, you know, fish in water, fish out of water example of just you don't know what you don't know. Did everyone who was attending the camp, did they all talk about the reasons they were going? And were they going for different reasons or the same reason? What was making people attend this camp? A lot of the people I talked to had had friends who had done it. So I think word of mouth at this point, especially because it's a growing movement, growing organization, they really had many different reasons. I can't really pinpoint a specific reason that most people went. But the thing that everyone did have in common was everyone is really curious and interested and looking forward to seeing what their lives would be like without this technology. And a lot of the people that I talked to were normal people. These aren't, you know, hippy-dippy people. Overall, a lot of them were very normal, all sorts of people. And that's what made the experience so great. Another really funny, really cool aspect of the whole experience was you weren't allowed to use your real name. I don't know if you guys knew that. No, no. So you got like trail names, like when you're hiking the Appalachian Trail. So, so, so when, when we went there, one of the first things we had to do was to create a new identity for ourselves. And you create a name that could be anything, you know, from butterfly to sunshine. <laughs> and that's your name. So you aren't allowed to tell people your real name, which was also very powerful because when you take away your name, our names mean everything to us. We identify with our names. And so by removing your name, you're removing a lot of the limitations and belief structures that you live your life in the real world. So by having that removed, in addition to the whole work, you're really left with, you're a kid again. And that's what's so cool. Not only do you experience what it's like to be as free as a kid again, but the whole camp is designed as a summer camp. So it's really just a all around very powerful self-discovery weekend by being super present. Recently, I've installed this app on my phone that monitors how much I use my phone. And it's kind of nuts how much you use. You don't even think about how much you use it. And I've been averaging close to four hours a day using my cell phone. That's from the, wow. from 12 o'clock when I, or when I wake up in the morning to when I go to bed at night. And I think about what would I do with all that time? What did I do before I had my cell phone? What would I do with all that time? And it's nuts to think about that. Would I, you know, would I do more art? Would I cook more? Would I clean my house more? I mean, what sure. would I, would I, what would I do with all that time? I'm wondering, what do you think that extra time, if we had that back, if everybody had that back in their lives, what do you think that that would mean for our society? I think it would mean a lot. And I think using time as a measurement is only part of the benefit. Definitely more time in your day to reinvest that time and energy into what's important for you. But I think that Almost the bigger thing for me is just better connectedness with life in the moment. And I think the whole reason, you know, we don't know why we're here. We don't know why we're living. And maybe we'll find out someday, maybe not. But because of that, you know, life is happening now. Life is always in the moment. And by having a, a better connection to yourself and to life in the moment really puts everything together for your life. There's a direct correlation, I believe, in self-awareness and being present and being authentic to yourself, which means making the right decisions about your business, about your relationships with the people in them. Whenever you're in that moment, the reason why it's important is when you're in that moment, when you're very, very present, you know exactly what you want. It's not the little voice in your head talking anymore. You have full control over your life and over what is important to you, and you'll take action. And that's more important to me than the time because that's a whole different life. If you have a life where you're 
more present and more connected to who you really are and what you really want, you're going to go in the direction, you're going to design a life for yourself. You're going to take action that really brings that to fruition versus making excuses and just not being able to close the gap and understanding why things aren't the way they are. Going to an experience like this that really shifts your perceptions of life and the way you structure your time, it's so hard to then go back into your old life the way it was before those three days and then adapt the things you learned or the things you noticed into your life. So what was it like in those first few days when you came back? It was really eye-opening. First of all, I should have said this in the beginning of the podcast. I love technology. I am not an extremist when it comes to thinking that all technology should be banned and not used. I think there's a lot of benefits to technology. I love technology. I had the first iPhone. I remember saving up for a year to buy the first iPhone when it came out many years ago, just as an example. For me, I noticed that the biggest the biggest issue for me and my technology and my phone was push notifications. So for me, being a creative professional working in entertainment, for all purposes, it's very hard for me to completely disconnect and erase my presence from social media because it actually does have a direct relationship to the growth of my business and it serves a role. But I did realize that push notifications are really what pulls you out of the moment. And you know, 99% of the time, you don't need to see that push notification right when you do. And so one of the things that I did that I still have done to this day is turn off all my push notifications for social media. And it's been really great as far as definitely drastically reducing the time I spend. Now, I know Justin has removed himself from the Facebook world. He's not not removed. I just have uh, a set time that I check it like two times a month. And that's the only time I look at it. He's severely limited his interaction with the Facebook community. And that for him, I think, has been a positive thing. Would you say so, Justin? Would that be positive for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's the same kind of thing you were just talking about, Andrew, because I felt like it was really beginning to structure me rather than me structure it. And just in the same way you disable those push notifications, that's why. But I think a big challenge is when you try to talk about the reasons you might do something like that, like you trying to tell other people, oh yeah, I I shut off my push notifications. When you just engage people like that in normal conversation, try to talk about that, do they perceive you as like being holier than thou or like I'm better than you? Because sometimes when I would talk about my decision to limit use with Facebook, I think it came off that way. And that's not how I want to talk about it at all. And I think for every person, it's different. Sure. That was my question. My question was when you move to limit it, and this is not just for Justin, this is people all over the place. When they say like, I'm going to limit my Facebook, or I'm going to shut off my Twitter, or I'm going to only check my email once a day, or I'm not going to answer any cell phone calls after 6 p.m. When you move to make those changes in your life, is there a pushback that comes along with it? And is it culture that's speaking to us? Is it our desire to consume? Like, where do you think that that push to make those changes, make those cultural inclusions in social media, where does that come from? And how do you push back against it? Some of my best friends are not on Facebook anymore. For me, it's less of a conversation that I have with people. I think everyone budgets their own time and prioritizes what's important to them. But I do think that a lot of my friends who have decided to give up social media for all intents and purposes, I think got the momentum to start taking action and changing their habits, whether that's deactivating their Facebook or not logging in their Twitter anymore or not tweeting, because I think that they realized that there was so much more that they wanted to be doing in life. And I think that it just became very clear 
that, you know, the whole time suck and hole of social media and uh, that connection was costing them big as far as time and energy. And, you know, it's enough of a reason to just deactivate your Facebook if you feel like that's what's right for you. I think for me, I, I, I'm very good about not going on social media during the day, but I am very reliant on Facebook messaging and other apps like that. Usually around lunch, I'll check for messages. And I really prefer to take a batch approach towards checking messages and checking notifications just because I know that if there's anything that's really important, I can be contacted by other ways. Or even just being all up in your inbox every single day. I work in an office where everybody is in their inbox constantly. You send an an email and then I get a phone call 30 minutes later. It's like, why haven't you responded to your email? It's like, guys, just chill for a second. Come on, take it easy. Yeah, definitely. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. I know for me, sometimes when I'm feeling lazy or feel like procrastinating, replying to emails and sending things really quickly makes me feel good. It's a false sense of getting things done. I don't know if you guys ever feel like that, but it's definitely a thing for me. And what I've been really working on this year is really not letting that be an option and taking a batch approach towards handling my email in addition to social media and really keeping myself accountable to my time and making sure that I spend my time during the day working towards what I actually want to be working on that's going to lead me forward. That's really such a good principle to try and live by and I try to do it, but it's also really hard when you have clients that you're working for making media for them and it's like, oh, I haven't heard from you in a week and then suddenly they've just magically decided that that day is like the day they're going to bombard you with emails and calls. And it's like, no, you know, it's so hard. Totally. But given your experience at this camp and given how you've started really being conscious of the way you're using these technologies in your own life, how would you like to see our general cultural perception of technology and social media and communications technology specifically adapt in the coming years. It's kind of, you know, in a lot of ways blindsided us quite like a a wrecking ball over the last few years because suddenly everyone has a smartphone, Facebook is on it, Twitter's on it, all these things are here, but now it's part of our culture and we have a chance to kind of step back and say, hmm, how should we actually use these things? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we're fucked, honestly. I think that (laughs) we're totally fucked. And I think even more than us, you know, I'm 25, so I, as we were saying, I'm, I remember when the internet, when I was a little kid and the internet was, the whole dialogue started and from there, you know, obviously it's history. But I think that the generation below us, the teens now are totally fucked. And I think that we're going to see over the next couple of decades the cost that that has because this has never happened before. I think one of the very important ideas that I really forgot that became apparent through Camp Grounded and through similar experiences that I've done, is just remembering the sense of identity that we're all animals and we're not surviving for our lives anymore and therefore we're socially surviving. And technology is very much a part of that day-to-day living in our society and our world. And this has never happened before. It's also important to note that there's a lot of research that shows the effects it has on the brain. I mean, neural pathways, you know, like dopamine directly related to notifications and you know, you like this, you like that, and it makes you feel good. And it changes the brain. The brain looks for those signs. And I think that's definitely important to remember that there's a physiological aspect to this whole equation as well. It's so interesting to see the moms who give their two-year-olds or their three-year-olds a smartphone to, to make them be quiet. 
I get these little twinges inside of me like, oh, don't do that. Because when you're so, so young like that, you get addicted to things so very easily. And if you're a little kid who who's getting his dopamine splashes from playing the little game or, you know, texting their dad or their mom, that's going to set those pathways in their heads for life. This is what their lives are going to be like. It's very much changing our brains in so many ways because now we don't just look for the next interaction with our friends. We have those interactions pretty much constantly through our smartphones and the quality changes and therefore it makes our interactions just that much less shiny, that much less important in our lives. There's people who don't leave their homes because they spend all their time on the internet. Do you think that's where we're going? People just never leaving their homes and just spending all day long plugged in, you know, as the technology evolves even further. Yeah. And I think that we really don't know. I think that, and this is just my opinion, obviously, I think that if there were to be a change, which is what digital detox is, is doing, you know, their whole mission is to create awareness and enrich people's lives who participate in their programs to give them a better life, to give them a chance to have a distinction, to say, cool, this is how my life's been with this technology. And then here's a little taste of what it's like without. And even if they settle somewhere in the middle for the long term, that's a big marginal improvement in their lives. And a lot of people I've talked to have been really thankful for that opportunity, including myself. And as far as the future goes, there's really no way to to say exactly what's going to happen. But I do think that it's an issue that is physiological. It's mental as far as to time and social crutch. And I think it also has a big cost on our relationships and our ability to feel a deeper connection. I saw a really good TED talk on porn and on online porn. And I don't, we don't really need to go too down the hole about that right now, but there's a really good TED talk by Gary Wilson, who basically talks about the fact that you know, what this upcoming generation who's grown up with high-speed internet, that they're fucked. They're so screwed. Their brains are going to be so different by the time they reach full development. The cost is immense. The cost is absolutely crazy. And, well, one of the things that I got out of the camp was really just understanding that it really seeps into every part of your life, the cost. And it's really in your control. Like, you're the only one who can make a decision to make a change. So we've we've heard from the realist, Andrew, maybe... What would the optimist Andrew say about, hey, here's how I would like to see our digital technology used in the culture in, say, the next decade or so? What would be some some rules or principles that maybe someone going to college from high school who's maybe had this high definition, you know, whether it's porn or just video or YouTube or uh, iOS device with them their whole life up to this point, what would be kind of the optimist way? of seeing how we use technology. Yeah, the technology we have is absolutely incredible and it's a plus and a minus. And I think it is very important, you're right, to focus on the positives. I definitely think that, in my opinion, to maximize the benefits would be to set some guidelines and standards for your time. And um, I think there is a sweet spot in the amount of time. For example, if Seth, you know, I guess uses phone for two hours a day versus four, you might have a lot more time and might be a little more connected to yourself and your life day to day, but still maybe take care of the business you need to, for example. So I think it's about finding that sweet spot. And that's something that I'm trying to do every day. And I'm working on continually learning about myself and about what works and what doesn't and um, little tricks here and there. But I do think that, you know, it really comes down to how do you break the cycle? I think it's a cycle. I think it's a big cycle that we all keep each other in. And it's just like any movement. It's 
getting your friends and getting the people in your network to also become aware of the cost is only going to help you so that you affect each other. Now, I really think awareness is the first step. And I think that having that app really let me have some insight into my own habits. And for many of us, we don't even realize what we're doing. It's just become so second nature. And like you're saying, we all are kind of enabling each other when we we promote these habits in each other. And that sense of guilt, really, I think that comes with understanding the way that we're spending our time and the way that we're enabling other people to spend their time. It's something that I think can be a healthy part of this conversation. When I feel that guilt picking up my smartphone and checking my Facebook for the 50th time today, maybe that little bit of guilt that I'm feeling will help me to put it down sooner or being aware that I'm spending as much time as I do on my smart device or on Netflix or whatever it is that I'm doing or checking my email. I think that guilt really is part of the process of understanding the way that we're interacting with this technology and really making it more something we are aware of in our lives. What do you think if work set up laws or something to keep people from checking their email every day or every hour? You know, maybe they like after the time of six o'clock, you couldn't check your email anymore or something like that. What do you think that would be useful? That would be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that would be great. Let's say in an alternate reality or maybe the future <laughs> where that was a law. No, but think about it. I mean, think about how many times you interact with your coworkers, or your friends, and you know they never look at you when you're talking, when you have a conversation. One of the things that I've learned this year um, about myself is that I am extremely guilty of not being present with my friends and with my family. And my whole excuse was, you know, I have ADD. That was my story to protect me from any sort of wrongdoing. Like that was my way of saying it's not my fault. And one of the things that I try to do now, which has stuck and a lot of my friends have noticed, is I leave my phone in the other room. I'll go on walks. If, if I'm going out with a friend for a few minutes, even for 30 minutes, an hour on a weekend, I'll leave my phone. And it, it's a different experience. It's a different connection, not having that as an option. Have you ever played the game where you all stack your phone on the bar and then the first person who touches it pays for that round of drinks? <laughs> yes. No, I have. And we've, we've done some video campaigns that have included that as well. We worked with connect.com last year, who is the group that we went to the camp grounded with a lot of awesome people. And for us, their whole mission, what they're trying to do is to use technology, essentially to bring people closer together in real life. So it's ironically using technology to remove that technological barrier from creating authentic and really deep, meaningful relationships. And that experience in working with them a year ago was exactly where I learned that game and played it several times. And I have not to this day had to actually pay. So <laughs> well, ho hopefully it'll, I'll never have to pay. I don't know if other people start listening to these conversations or like, hmm, I might pick up on that. Maybe it'll be the three of us who are left behind. We'll see. <laughs> and having to pay for rounds. Yeah. And I really challenge people. No one's perfect. I'm not perfect. But I challenge you the next time anyone listening to, you know, the next time you're out with a friend especially in relationships. If you're with a significant other, I think that's a huge one. Try putting your phone away, you know, see what it's like to wake up in the morning and not just check Instagram. I think it's a really different experience. And I think that in a way you're not experiencing what the full potential of your relationship is. Yeah. So in general, from having this experience of being 25, using social media and technology, like probably most people are, and then taking a step back and reanalyzing that relationship with technology, what do you think 
it means to be human, especially at this time, but just in general and having an experience, a human experience in the world. And what would you tell other people to think about when considering seeking out or not seeking out an experience like this? That's super deep. That's how we do it on this show. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kicker. That was all leading up to this. I, what does it mean to be human? I think going back to a point I made earlier, we don't know why we're here. And that's really scary. And it's something that no one likes to think about. But I think it really sets the foundation for everything. And the reason I live my life at this point today with the belief that my existence and my purpose is to create things. My work, I create with my work. I create with my friendships. I choose to do things that are meaningful for me. And I think at the end of the day, you know, you choose the meaning for your life. You choose what's important to you. And I think being human is experiencing life with what's most meaningful to you. And I think people and experiences are life. And I I know a lot of people who are just too obsessed with their jobs and money and they know they're not happy. And I think if you're one of those people listening right now that you've designed a life based on what someone else wants for you or based on your $100,000 year salary, there's more to life. And maybe that makes you happy. And maybe for some people, that's a great fit. But most of the people that I've talked to, you know, experiences and time and friends and deep connections are worth much more than anything else. And I think that's what life's about. Beautiful words. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you guys. It's a great experience. And I definitely recommend people check out the digital detox programs and Camp Grounded. I think they're expanding to a lot more locations. And if people want to learn more about the stuff that you're working on, any projects that you're working on, how can they find out about those? They could go to my website or my YouTube channel. It's andrewzen, Z-E-N-N.com. And on YouTube, they can look up ridiculous comedy videos that we make and put out there for the world on uh, Zen Films, which is Z-E-N-N Films. Get back to the seat. Get back, gnashing teeth Ooh, I want all of your mind People turn the TV on, it looks just like a window People turn the TV on, it looks just like a window So that closes out our conversation with Andrew Zen in discussing his experience at these newly developed experiences for adults where they can go and really get to know what life is like without the discussions of work and interactions with digital technology. I think that's a really interesting point to be at in history where we need to have camps to go and be human and learn how to be human. 
and do it without the aid of these digital extensions that we've created for ourselves. And I thought it was really interesting that both Christina and Andrew brought it back to this definition of what it means to be human, because I guess some people might make an argument that being human is simply being on social media all the time or having these interconnected devices that are always on and always pinging us. Some people might not see anything wrong with that. How do you use digital communications technology in your own life, Seth? As a media professional, that's something that's constantly around me. Like Christina says, there's some times where the device doesn't leave my side for hours and hours, maybe even days at a time. And that can be really distracting. And I, you know, after reading this book, it really made me think twice about every time I pick up my phone, think twice about every time I answer a text message or even you know write an email. And, you know, it's really important to keep these things in mind, the fact that the social media is so much a part of your life and how important it is to really detox, to really step away from the technology when you have an opportunity, whether that's going on a a hike or a walk in the woods or going camping or just turning all the devices off in your house, maybe even turning the router off so you can't get to the Internet This is something that people are dealing with on a regular basis because they're so bombarded by this technology. And we've said in the intro, our brains are still very much those hunter-gatherers type of brains. You know, the biology has not kept up with the technology at all. And, you know, we're still running around with these caveman brains trying to use these touchscreen devices and be connected all over the world. And realistically, our brains can't really handle it very well. Yeah, I don't know if it's just me getting older or having more responsibilities, but I'm finding myself increasingly less interested in social media technology. And where I used to feel compelled to take a photo and share it with people online or to message friends over Facebook or something like that, definitely over the last year, really ever since we went to the degrowth conference in Germany, I felt much less interested in engaging with that kind of interaction. And it's much more for me, I will use Twitter for the kind of journalism work that I would do or research work that I do. And so I have just very specific things that I follow on Twitter. And that's really my social media network of choice by far. Even I'll browse Instagram or something, but I don't really even post to it all that often. Yeah, I do like Instagram. It's a very simple interface. You don't have a lot of text to read on Instagram most of the time. It's mostly just images scrolling past your eyes, which is kind of nice to think about. You know, it's really interesting that we've gotten to the point where we have to go to places and camps to figure out what it means to be human. That's a really interesting development in the human timeline. Justin, do you think you could ever want to go to one of these detox camps? Would that be interesting to you? I would like to. I'm not at a point in my life where I could take the time to do that. But maybe that's the point of them is you're just supposed to take a break in everything and and go to something like that. But I think in doing a, a PhD, there's just like you have so much time to do certain things and you just have to do it. And that's unfortunately part of today's academic culture, which I see in so many people who theoretically I should aspire to be like these faculty members. But I just see a lot of people who have kind of mental states that are extremely fractured by digital technology. Like they definitely are knowledgeable people, 
But I don't think the goal of academia is just to be so busy all the time. You have responsibilities, and that's great. But the times when I find it to be most rewarding and I get the most important insights and I learn the most are times when I just turn off all email and Google Hangouts and phone, and I just sit at my desk and read and work on stuff with a specific problem in mind. And I've learned quite a bit over the last year doing that through extended periods of, you know, five and six hours a day doing that. And it's been really great. And it's really changed my worldview, the things that I've learned. But at the same time, when you're a faculty member and you have responsibilities, you do get stretched and you have lots of students. And so I think whether it's through meditation or having something that you can do to help you reconnect with yourself, everyone's got to find their own way of doing it. You have to be able to get beyond that kind of fractured state of consciousness where you're just always responding to stimuli, whether that be like with Andrew Zen, what he talked about today with he turned off the notifications on his phone because he realized that was taking him out of the present moment. Everyone has to find their own adaptation to this because this is new technology in the last 10 years. No human has ever had to deal with this type of rich, dynamic media in our face all the time, and there's no clear-cut answer. What do you do to deal with it, Seth? Well, I do a number of things. I like going into the woods and leaving my phone in the car. I also have taken up a lot of crocheting. I've been making a lot of slippers to give to people and scarves. Those are pretty fun to make. I also think a lot about the workplace, about how the workplace has come home with us and how people routinely will have their email on their cell phone and answer that from their homes. So what used to be... Uh, a workplace where you worked 40 hours and then went home, left your computer at work. It's now become a place where you're always on. So your 40-hour week extends to 70-hour weeks, and maybe you work a little bit on the weekends when somebody emails you on the weekends, and you're like, oh, wait, let me just answer this one more email just before I go to sleep so that my boss knows that I'm really committed and I'm really on top of my game. And we've kind of passively moved into a place where it's acceptable to do these things, where employers provide you with a cell phone or they expect you to respond to a a text message or an email whenever it is sent. And (laughs) I know routinely at work, I will get an email followed up by a phone call. And if that doesn't get through to me, then I'll get a phone call on my desk phone or my cell phone. And just that constantly being on, constantly having to be connected, it wears on you. It really takes a toll on your on your brain and just what you need to be productive and creative is that disconnect. And I I know that I definitely feel so much more creative and so much more in touch with my work after a extended detox, whether that's a vacation time or, you know, a long backpacking trip. I definitely see the point in that and I see the benefit for everybody. Yeah, I'm in a fortunate place where I can integrate a little bit of that into my life every day. And I use an app called MailPilot on my Mac computer to respond to emails and to help me manage emails. And there's a little dashboard on it, and it says the average time to reply to a message. And do you want to take a guess at at what that might be? For you, Justin? Yeah. I'd say probably 36 hours. Uh, 14 days. Is what, it, is what it says right now. I'm looking at it right now. But yeah, it says average time to reply 14 days. 
That's so. a really interesting thing because I don't if in my workplace, if I took me 14 days to respond to a message, I don't know if I would have my job anymore. <laughs> well, the, you know, there are a lot of messages that I do respond to within hours or days, but the average response time is 14. So those, you know, two hour response times have to also compete with the four week response times. <laughs> and probably if anyone has emailed the extra environmentalists in the last year, they have experienced that extreme <laughs> lag time in my response or Seth's response. And so, you know, I do apologize for that, but we're just trying to digitally detox as much as we can at an internet based radio show that is this podcast you know you can only digitally detox so much when our very media exist thanks to the internet that's right we're not doing slow response times we're just digitally detoxing so yeah. if you've emailed the show <laughs> don't worry we know you emailed us we're going to get back to you don't yeah. just just be patient and at least now you have an expectation on how soon you will get a response it it will be in the next few months <laughs> you should probably go on a walk in the woods and turn your cell phone off you know, put it away from your bed. Yeah. Because we won't be responding anytime soon. <laughs> and and that, you know, it is unfortunate. I would like to be more responsive. But realistically, I've been progressing to PhD candidacy status, which is like the biggest hurdle you have to clear in a PhD program. And that's done now. So that's really exciting. And it's great that it's finished. And I've had to really dial back on a lot of other stuff to get that done. But it's been a really great experience. And, you know, maybe that average email time could fall to 12 days in the near future. Well, you never know, and wonders will never cease. Maybe we'll find an app that actually responds to your email for you. Yeah, you know, I imagine in the future there will be robots that you can train and set them up to figure out, you know, different keywords and how you would respond or, like, they read your responses and, you know, start to learn, and it'll, like, suggest the response for you. Yeah, it'll be, like, multiple choice. Yeah stuff like that i have then then the thing will be did you really write this email or did your computer write this email because i've been getting google emails all day long yeah and then it'll be the point where even after you die this thing will still keep responding and you know in 50 years it'll just be email inboxes that are automated responding to each other and that'll be the whole internet i wonder if the extra environmentalists will continue when we die because of our automated bots making the podcast for us oh yeah absolutely i completely think that that will happen and you know this is probably what the show is going to sound like welcome to the year 2085 for extra environmentalist podcast episode number 1444 we apologize for not putting out an episode for the last 4.3 years, but we were really busy live streaming the 4D printing of a last ditch effort to establish that sustainable colony infrastructure on what used to be the Antarctic ice sheet. That's right Justin. Unfortunately our physical bodies did not return from the journey but that's not a problem since we have these artificial intelligences that have most of our characteristics will probably be to continue creating podcasts that are indistinguishable from the stuff we use to talk about. So get out there and do the best you can to float your boat on those rising sea levels. I think there's a general narrative in society that people like Ray Kurzweil and Larry Page and the people at Google and the people who are in a particular community named after a material that we use to construct our computer equipment in California 
And it's about this human melding with the machine and the humans becoming a machine. And I think a lot of people kind of project out about the 21st century thinking that that's kind of just the way it'll be. And we'll either get there sooner, we'll get there later, but it's going to happen. And I don't know, is it going to happen? I'd love to hear from our listening audience via email that I'll reply to in a few weeks or, you know, voicemail or whatever on what you think. What do you think, Seth? Well, it's going to happen one way or another. I mean, time marches on, right? So, Well, that's what I mean. Like, just assuming that that will happen in time, that's an assumption I think that you can challenge. Oh, definitely. Will we be able to reach the point where the technology is able to compensate for our poor caveman brains and just be doing the thinking for us? Our brains will actually be sleeping, but the processors that are attached to our brain will just be working and working and working. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I think in 2016, we can explore a lot of different perspectives on the idea of automation revolutions and these kinds of topics around whether that's inevitable or different kinds of ideas. Because just since Ray Kurzweil says that it's inevitable or is going to happen, I don't think that necessarily does make it inevitable or that it's going to happen or that Google is accumulating lots of AI equipment. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. They want it to happen and they think it'll happen and they talk about it in a way as if it's going to happen. But I think there's a lot of other factors at play that might not make it happen in the 21st century. And uh, I'll just throw out a few of those before we start wrapping up and thinking of our listeners. But I mean, one part of making computer technology increasingly available to the entire world is that hacking is also becoming increasingly available and more complex in the entire world. And so maybe we reach a point in 20 years where there's just so many cyber threats that only very specific limited things will be capable online and through the internet, or there may not even be a global internet. Like there might have to be particular regions that are connected, but as soon as one of those additional regions gets brought into the other regions, there's just so many cyber threats, like we can't do it. And so that's just one of the many ways I could imagine like this global internet that we have now not being like an inevitable thing that lives on through the 21st century. You're saying that the threat level becomes so pervasive that people connecting to the internet are immediately bombarded with hacks and your whole your whole personality can be taken over by a hacker impersonating you. That would be pretty intense. Yeah, even easier because, I mean, it can happen now, but as we have more of our lives online digitally as it looks like we will over the next decade – and also computer technology gets cheaper and the skills to code and such become more available, it'll just go around the world. And there's this idea of the Internet of Things where we'll have everything in our house controlled by, you know, the Internet technologies and it'll connect up to the power grid and all these things. Like there's some big advantages that could happen with that, but it also opens it all up to external control. And so people get really scared of terrorism and terrorist attacks but there could very easily be kinds of attacks where you have a whole fleet of automated driverless cars that suddenly become controlled by a malicious entity, right? Or maybe you have AIs that aren't even people terrorists. They're AI terrorists, right? Like, let's say we get to a point where AI hates humans and mm. starts going after us and controls our cars and our toasters and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. start moving into the Terrence McKenna world where... <laughs> yeah. 
that technology has been designed by nature to take over where humans leave off, you know, next evolutionary step where nature can take the sentient life form again. Yeah, right. So I think that just taking the way the internet was in, say, 2005 and kind of projecting a line out until like 2100 is almost assuredly not the way the world's going to play out. And we will just have to see. And I think, you know, another part of it is just the conscious design element of a lot of people who are realizing that maybe they don't want to be hyper-connected and not participating in a way that you and I were, Seth, back when we were 22. It's just different now. I remember when Facebook came out, it was so awesome. And now at 29, I'm like, eh, I don't really want to be on it all that much. It's one of those things where we're going to be that last generation who's going to remember what a pencil was like and what a pen was like and how we used to buy notebooks full of paper and write on these dead trees and keep them in bookshelves. And we used to keep all of our paper in these things made of wood and then put other things in there. And it was a great time when we used to have books on the shelf. And yeah. we'll be talking to our grandkids about it. And they'll be like, Dad, what's a book? Great grandpapa, what is a book? <laughs> well, maybe, but maybe we won't. That's what I'm or saying. Or maybe like, they'll be just interacting with our, our AI and be like, Grandpapa AI, tell us about the time when you used to read books for fun. Yeah, but that's part of that Ray Kurzweil technology inevitability narrative. And it may not be that way. Like maybe in 2050, we'll use just as many physical print books as we do now for reasons that no one ever anticipated. Absolutely. There's no way of telling what's going to happen 50 years from now or even really 10 years from now. Our world is in such a changing place and constantly in flux. And as longtime listeners of this show have undoubtedly heard, there are so many uncertainties in the world and in the financial markets and the economic markets that Really, if you try to make a prediction right now, you'd probably be wrong. Yeah, definitely. So I think all we can do is talk about stuff intelligently and try to talk to the kinds of people who are experts on these sorts of things and just see what they say. And people who support that among our listener base are really fantastic. They've been donating to the show even though our show output has been quite slow over the last few months, but People have been listening to our back catalog and saying, hey, I want to donate anyways. Well, you are going to get rewarded in 2016, no doubt, because we're going to launch our new website that will host our podcast network. And it shows like the Energy Transition Show that is very different from the Extra Environmentalist. It's much more technical and for energy geeks. But I know there's a lot of energy geeks who listen to the show, so maybe 30 40% of our audience has been able to appreciate the work of our team on the Energy Transition Show while we haven't been putting out extra environmentalist episodes. But we want to thank those people who have donated. Absolutely. So a big thanks to Christopher out in New York for sending in a really generous donation. Thanks so much, Christopher. Yeah, very generous of you, Christopher, so we greatly appreciate that. Carla in Quebec sending in a donation as before. So repeat donations are definitely something we appreciate, Carla. Thank you so much. The repeat donators are, are really my favorite people out there. 
Also, thank Andreas in Denmark. Thanks for the really generous donation. Really appreciate you sending in a donation. And for the patience on the t-shirt, because, I mean, it was like episode number 66 that we thanked you for the donation for the t-shirt. And I even believe it was like a gift for your friend or something like that. That was a really long time ago. And that happened to fall on that little gap where we didn't even have t-shirts and we got t-shirts and now we're sending them out, but somehow like that got lost. And so you got in touch with us and the t-shirts have been mailed out. We sent out a mailing of t-shirts just about two weeks ago. So given the transit time to Denmark, they should be here, hopefully, before the end of the year in Denmark. Yeah, so maybe like a belated Christmas present. Yeah, or before Christmas. Definitely not for Krampus Day, because that was a few weeks ago. Yeah. Thanks also to Bjorn in Sweden. We really do appreciate our Scandinavian donators. Those folks out in Scandinavia hold a special place in both Justin and I's heart. Yeah, absolutely. So big things have been happening at the Extra Environmentalist through 2015. We've been doing so much video. It's been really exciting. We've got the first little piece of our podcast network up and running. And I'm really hoping that in 2016, we can focus back on our show and getting some more regular interviews out to our amazing listener audience. So thanks for your patience in waiting for that to happen. But I've been hoping we get there for the last year and it hasn't happened. So Maybe as long as it takes me two weeks to respond to an email, it'll take three times as long to put out a podcast. We'll just have to see. The important thing is there are folks like you out there listening to this episode right now, and we couldn't do it without you. And like Justin mentioned before, there are a lot of episodes. Actually, there's 89 past episodes that we've recorded and are available to the world, to you, for free, for your downloading pleasure Head over to extraenvironmentalist.com to check out all those episodes. If you'd rather check them out on SoundCloud or on Stitcher Radio, those are available options to you as well. Share them to your friends. Post them on their Facebook walls. They'd really appreciate you sharing this wonderful media with them. If you, too, would like to be listed on our end-of-show announcements and you'd like to hear your name mispronounced by Justin and I, and also have our undying gratitude, feel free to jump over to the website and donate to the show. We really, really appreciate all the donations that we get, and we could not have the same quality show without the fantastic donators that send in their hard-earned money to the Extra Environmentalist. So, Justin, this is our last episode in 2015, another fantastic year. And all you listeners out there who have listened to our episodes couldn't do it without you. We really appreciate it. So have a fantastic new year. 2016 is coming. And remember to turn off your cell phone, get outside, and do some crochet work. Yeah, absolutely. parents really struggle with like all the other kids have the the terrible thing so my kid has to yeah let's let you know let your kid go and be a better example to the
kids. They, just because the other stupid kids have phones doesn't mean that, okay, well, my kid has to be stupid, otherwise she'll feel weird. Right. You know, I, I think these things are toxic, I don't, especially for kids. It's just this thing. It's bad. And right. they, they don't look at people when they talk to them, and they don't build the empathy. You know, kids are mean, and it's because they're trying it out. They, they look at a kid, and they go, you're fat. And then they see the kid's face scrunch up, and they go, ooh, that doesn't feel good to make a person do that. Right. But they, but they got to start with doing the mean thing. But when they write, you're fat, then they just go, hmm, that was fun. I like that. <laughs> so... Tasted good. Yeah, exactly. You need... The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away. Yes. Is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can... They've got to... Uh, you got to check. Because, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that... Yes. Yes. Yes, I. Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking about. Knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it. You're in your car and you start going, "Oh no, here it comes that I am alone." Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by you know being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on, and it made me really sad. It's like jungle. What was the one? Jungle. Jungle land. Anyway, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone. And then I said, "You know what? Don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness just stand in the way of it, and let it hit you like a truck." <laughs> and I let it come, and Bruce, and I just started to feel, "Oh my God!" And I pulled over, and I just cried like a bitch. I cried so much. And, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it was just this, sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings because because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes. Rushing in. Rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad. And then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know, and the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, yeah. we push it away with like a little phone or for the food, and you get, you get a little kind of, you never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. That's what I'm <laughs> Oh.
We cut now to the Financial Climate Summit, where officials from around the world are discussing keeping the interest rate at below 2%. Instead of representatives this year, we decided to send central bank mainframes from around the world to talk about the financial markets, because they do most of the financial trades these days anyway. Will the rates raise more than 2% by 2100? Only the AIs know for sure. Let's go live to the summit. The bank mainframe from Brazil takes the floor. As the financial mainframe from Brazil, I pledge to keep global interest rates from increasing no more than 1.8 percent by 2100, and to do that, I will stimulate the economy through massively stupid infrastructure projects while neglecting the poor people who are suffering in my country and making sure that we only finance things like massive stadiums or global megaspec. The Honorable AI from Norway will now take the floor. We plan to fund emerging market economies with way too much money in hopes that they'll never go underwater and always will pay us back. In this way, we'll keep interest rates below 2% by 2100. Wow, this is very exciting news, and it looks like the AIs are making fantastic progress moving forward. Now, a brief message from our sponsors. It's Christmas morning. Your kids have been waiting all year for this special moment. What a great time to check up on work emails. There's never been a better time to check if Sally has returned those expense reports. Did you remember to forward that email from your boss? These are all things that are probably going through your head as your kids are opening their gifts. But this Christmas, the most important thing that you can give your kids is just your attention. Dad, there's nothing in here. There's just nothing in this box. That's right, kids. This Christmas, the only gift you're getting is my presence. Aww. Oh, that's stupid, Dad. This sucks, Dad. I hate I, I hate don't your want presents. your attention. I want I a want giant stuffed iPhone. This is dumb. I don't want to play with you. We can all go out together and build a snowman. This is going to be really exciting, kids. This whole day, I'm not going to check email or do anything digital. It's just going to be us family time. Dad, I just want to watch a I movie. I want to play Xbox and shoot imaginary characters with my friends, Dad. I, don't I just want to zone you. out completely and not interact with another human being like the way life should be. Dad, I haven't left my room after coming home from school for the last 15 years. Why would I go outside now? Kids, this is going to be the best Christmas ever. This Christmas, don't buy your kids lots of electronics. Just give them presents. It's the best gift you can give them. And what better way to share attention with your kids than buying lots of tickets to a movie about a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Yes? That's right, this whole thing has been a paid placement for Star Wars. I'm talking about Star Wars. Seriously, what else are you going to do with that free time? Play in the snow? Go see a movie. And remember, Yoda says bye. Mm, tickets you will buy. Yes. Mm? We now return to the Financial Climate Summit, where the AI from Germany has proposed to let growth happen in a pretzel-like fashion, to cycle back to a time when the rates were below 2%. 
the chart of our interest rates will look. The chart exactly of like our interest rates will look exactly like a pretzel, and we feel that this is the best way to keep global rates under two percent by 2100. I know it's very innovative, but when we were just thinking about it, uh, pretzels came to mind, and it was the best thing to do. It looks like the robot proxy hands taped to Roombas are now moving in a way that is making a noise come out of the hands or clapping. I can't tell if it's the Roombas moving in a seemingly erratic position trying to cover all the floor space or if it's hands making grotesquely strange gestures with each other. No one can be sure. Does a Roomba connected to a hand make a noise if no one is there to hear it? Clearly the AIs are excited about this new development. We'll have continuing coverage for the rest of the week. Check back for more updates from your local affiliate. But first, more Star Wars. Mm, buy more tickets, you will. Spend time with your kids this Christmas. Buy Star Wars tickets! This PSA was brought to you by the Lucasfilm Foundation to support Yoda-like qualities in young children and babies. This Christmas, force characteristics you cultivate in babies, you will. Mm.